0: Talk, the podcast for trawler nuts and long-range cruising enthusiasts. As the signature podcast of Passage Maker Magazine, Trawler Talk aims to engage, educate, and inspire as we dive into the very best of the long-range cruising lifestyle. I'm your host, Andrew Parkinson. Hey guys welcome to another episode of trawler talk i am yours truly andrew parkinson with passage maker magazine and if you're like me you often find yourself surfing the web in your spare time to get your boating fix well about a year ago i started noticing a facebook group called trawler life popping up in my feed the posts were short one or two minute live cruising videos on this gorgeous trawler with this charming couple named bruce and dorsey beard I instantly became a fan, and I've been following them ever since as they travel up and down the East Coast and everywhere in between. If you already know about the Beards, and judging by their 10,000 Facebook fans, I'm guessing some of you probably do, then you're going to love today's episode. If you don't follow them already, or if you're not into Facebook, and that's okay too, listen up, because Bruce and Dorsey have a lot of Trawler Life to share with us today. So without further ado, let's bring in longtime cruisers and founders of the Trawler Life Facebook group, Bruce and Dorsey Beard. Welcome to Trawler Talk.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Maybe we can start out talking about the trawler life in general. You know, how did the trawler life find you? How did you get into the type of cruising that you've been doing?
1: Well, we were um, sailors. We've been married 24 years now. Dorsey sailed her whole life. I started it a little later. And when we first got married, we were both working and sailing every opportunity we could. Dorsey's crossed oceans. She's done two Atlantic crossings, one Pacific crossing. I don't know how many times she's been to Bermuda.
0: On sailboats. On
1: sailboats. And after three Newport to Bermuda races double-handed and probably six Newport to Bermuda races as a couple and, I don't know, 20 times back and forth to Maine, for a summer vacation, I became, I guess I got saturated a little bit with sailing. And sailing offshore is one thing, but turning the motor on enough sailboats to go to Block Island before the Southwest comes up, even though the boat sails well, became a little bit tiresome for me. And I started thinking that a powerboat some kind would be a good thing, a trawler. And that's where it started. Dorsey came along sort of reluctantly. The first time I told her that I was thinking about this, she cried.
2: <laughs> I couldn't imagine life without a sailboat. so it was a, a difficult transition at first. Bruce was really marching down the path towards getting into trawlers. So as a couple cruising and doing stuff together, I sort of followed along because he was no longer adequately engaged in the sailing side of things.
0: Why a trawler? What were the pluses that won you over? So trawlers, that was the
1: obvious next step. And of course, that's a pretty wide ranging group of boats. I only knew that I didn't want to go everywhere at seven knots. I had no interest in crossing oceans. That wasn't in the cards. It's not what we wanted to do with the boat. Not that I wouldn't, but that's just not what we were planning. The availability of speed we considered somewhat important. And uh, then we just started looking at semi-displacement boats and pretty quick zeroed in on the American target.
0: Let's talk about your current boat, Esmeralda. You know, what features were appealing to you? Uh, Number one, was she named Esmeralda already?
1: We built her. We named her Esmeralda. Esmeralda is a name that started with my first boat and we just kept using it. It was a green boat and I was in panic to name the boat because I didn't like the name on the boat that I had. And my mother came up with that name and the spelling. It's an old French name or our spelling is the name Esmeralda. So, yeah, we came from Esmeralda, the sailboat, to Esmeralda, the American tug, and there's a green thing on all of our boats. The American tug, I liked the genre, and I liked the boat a lot, but I was trying to take my time and decide what I wanted. This boat ticks a lot of the boxes.
2: There are certain factors that are more or less important to any given person, and it's always different. Um, I kind of look at the overall boat and the feel of it, Bruce zeroes in very quickly on build quality, uh, engineering, mechanical systems, and how it's all put together. So, you know, what he started seeing in the American tug might not have been what I started seeing uh, at first glance also.
1: And I was very fond of what I started seeing. The first time I got aboard that boat and got in the engine room and started looking at systems, installation, wiring runs, plumbing, the way the floors were built, bulkheads. That's the kind of stuff I look at and I liked what I saw quickly on that boat. I took a look at that and said, This is sort of well done. And I come from the automotive world, so that's part of where that comes from. I spent a lifetime in garages, uh and ran a business uh fixing European cars, so I can't help if it's just the way my head is, just the way I'm wired.
0: What points of advice would you give to prospective trawler owners that are maybe starting the search? What are a few things they should keep an eye out for when they're when they're starting their search?
1: It's hard because everyone has different needs in a boat. There are people that use their boats and go dock to dock and the mechanic's waiting and deals with things and they don't care. And if you write that check, it doesn't matter how much room is around the engine. I like room to move. I like clean looking installations, wiring harnesses, plumbing should be neat and tidy and it should look good. It should look uh, almost geometric as you look at things, but it, it, it should flow. And if it looks like it's a mess, Chances are, it's less thought that went into it, perhaps, which bodes poorly for future repair ability. Somebody has to maintain a boat. I'm a little weird about it. I I try to keep my boat as clean and nice as I can. And I do things because I have time. We're retired now. I, I do things other people wouldn't even consider. I you know, wash engines and engine compartments and keep them clean. I check wiring at, at both ends if I can. And... I'm crawling around and build just, just inspecting things pretty regularly because, it's, again, it's just the way I'm wired. The ability to do those things, I think, is pretty important. So that's part of what I look for. I look for name brand engines and transmissions and components and glass. And I, I take apart the a boat forever in my mind and see what it's made of. The parts matter. The build quality matters. The design matters. So it's it's not a simple thing. And if you don't know, then you have to rely on somebody else. I'd be lying if I said I didn't have biases. I do. Some forms of my own experience and some forms of reading things. Uh, We all do. So I would still go to perceived quality of the build.
0: Let's talk about the layout. What made this boat stand out for you?
2: When we're on a boat living the, the trawler lifestyle, we move a lot. We don't typically go sit in one place for long periods of time. Therefore, the comfort of the boat while underway was a big consideration. One of the things about the American Tug that I think we really do like, it has a dedicated pilot house that is set up for being comfortable underway for long periods. A lot of the boats we looked at have really nice salons, and then the uh, steering station or nav station is sort of built in as part of the salon and one person can sit there. Some some boats, our size 40, 42 feet, don't really even have a a legitimate helm seat, and that doesn't work. uh, So we have a really nice, comfortable, dedicated pilot house, which is set up specifically for navigation, for visibility, for communicating, and for the two of us to be there together comfortably, and our two dogs to be there comfortably. So as far as moving the boat and navigating, it's, it's a comfortable platform to be engaged in everything about boat life underway.
1: It's got great visibility. A real offshore hauler frequently has small windows because they don't want to be uh, exposed to the possibility of a window being shattered by a wave. Our boat, people that come off of similar size, what I'll call offshore boats, will frequently get aboard and say, wow, look at the visibility because they're surrounded by windows, which because we're not... Heading offshore, don't have to be so small. The comfort in that pilot house is very high, and especially uh, in
2: all conditions, we can be. It can be freezing cold. You know, we've been out on the waterway headed south where it is below freezing outside, ice on the deck, windy, rainy, whatever the conditions <laughs> are. Even stifling hot, we can be in our pilot house and be either warm and dry or cool with air conditioning. So we can go in all conditions, which is important to us, and it makes it a lot more fun and interesting. We certainly try our best to avoid really bad weather, can go in almost anything, and um, that makes a difference to our ability to keep moving and to cruise comfortably.
0: And you are on the go quite often. Let's talk about the living aboard aspect for long-range cruising. You know, what's it like to spend significant amounts of time? What challenges might couples face with extended cruising?
1: Well, I'm going to jump in and say one thing. When we were on sailboats after three or four weeks, I was always ready to get off the boat. Happy to be aboard. Loved it. But always sort of breathed a sigh of relief when I could stretch my legs a little bit. And I never get that on this boat. We've been aboard for seven months, and it's just delightful. It really is a comfortable platform.
2: It's different for everybody. You know, Everybody has their tolerances. Everybody has different needs for privacy or for having me time. So any couple that's thinking about embarking on this really needs to assess their own personal needs as individuals and as a couple. Bruce and I have spent a lot of time together in small, confined places. So we've developed patterns that work for us. And it's not that we never have disagreements and <laughs> need to get up and do our own thing. <laughs> but but we've figured out how to do it and I think um what works for us may or may not work for other people. So I would I would say people have to think long and hard about what they need. I need a good galley. I need food on board, we can cook for <coughs> ourselves and we have that. Um I, I keep a really good pantry on board and so we can do pretty much anything at any time um and that's important to us. We also And love I'll
1: tell you Dorothy Cook.
2: <laughs> we love going out to eat, so we always sort of build into into our our trips places that we like to go where there are cool little restaurants and nice little towns to do shopping and farmer's markets and things like that. So in our planning, we're thinking about what we want to do on board and, and what the onboard fun stuff is and also what the going ashore opportunities are and mix it up you know we do like getting into the rhythm of life on board and to really get into the rhythm you have to figure out what works and what doesn't i mentioned the dogs before we do have two scotties and unfortunately we've never been successful at getting them to do their stuff on board which means we have to go ashore several times a day and that does have a big impact on our daily cruising decisions it is limiting at times, but we, they're part of the family. We wouldn't cruise without them, and we make it work. And you can make it work. It also gets us ashore to see a lot more places and meet a lot more people than we would otherwise. So it's a fun part of our cruising. It's an that's actually, part of life
1: that is a critical part of the life on board, and that's one of the things that keeps us able to keep going. It's the newness. It's one of the reasons we like moving around, uh, uh, to sort of explore and find and the new places. It's a blast.
0: Let's get into that a little bit. When you're moving around, how much time do you typically allocate in, in a certain destination?
1: It depends on where it is. I have pretty powerful reactions to things sometimes, and I will I will get to a place and not like something about it, and I don't want to be there, so we just move on. But I often get to a place and look at Dorsey and say, I'd like to live here. And That, uh,
2: that, that opens up the topic also of planning and how do you plan your trips and we are definitely in the camp of less planning is better. I would say don't spend so much time planning your trips and your stops and how long of any given day is. I would say spend more time on doing your homework about navigation, about weather, about places that you might like to see and leave your options open. You never know what the outside impact is going to be on your daily plan and in our book, sort of the best plan is no plan, but make sure you've done lots of homework.
1: And we've done that for years or 20 plus years. We get in the boat and take off and don't always know which way we're going. We'll take a look at conditions and what's happening and kind of toss a coin. The only reservation we had two years running in advance was the time we spent in West, which is the only place we spent any time. Other than that, we kind of wing it.
2: We also tend to veer towards places that are not in peak season. Block Island on an August afternoon not so much. Right. Block Island <laughs> in September or or early May, mm. we love it. Nantucket, never go in in July or so August, not for us. but we love it in early June, we love it in September. We often, you know, we're in New England and it's busy in New England in July and August. We're not on the boat so much then. You know, we do other things. But then when off-season begins to kick in, we get back on the boat and start, start playing.
0: Let's talk about division of labor. You know, we could go through what's a typical day for Bruce and Dorsey, but every day is going to be different depending on where you are and what you're doing. But what's the general division of labor on board? Is there someone that drives the boat more? Is there someone that is more in charge of the galley? How does that all work?
1: Well, Dorsey cooks and she drives the boat and navigates. I am the uh, chief engineer that keeps things clean, polished, wax running smoothly and moving forward in terms of whatever I feel like adding to the boat that I can. Those are, that in general is what happens. I do drive the boat. I can drive the boat. I can navigate. But she's, she's much more natural at both.
2: And I do weather. We, yeah,
1: she does weather. She cooks. Although I, 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 do some things. I, uh, like I do grill on the back. I do. I love grilling things. Uh, I bring the dinghy down and up, although I ask her to do it once in a while because it's one of those little procedures that has a lot of steps. I want to know that she's capable of hauling it up if she has to. Occasionally I'll, I'll invite her down into the engine room and show her things.
2: We have a very good division of labor on the boat and it has happened naturally because of our um, different backgrounds. As Bruce said, I navigate, I do the weather, I do the cooking, you know, those are the things I like to do, those are the things I'm good at, and he does the mechanical things. The problem is that I worry about is because he's so good at all the mechanical stuff and likes doing it and considers it his niche, I stay out of it and therefore I don't know it as well as I should. Before Bruce and I got married, I had my own boat and I was responsible for everything and that was great and I loved taking care of my own boat and doing the mechanical stuff. It was a very simple boat, nothing like Esmeralda, but um, I have stepped away from those things on this boat and it worries me. So the vision of labor on a boat is a really good thing, but I think you do need to make an effort to cross pollinate and... We do make an effort, but we, sh- we could
0: do better and we should do better.
1: As a word of advice, don't give your wife top quizzes about a mechanical system that doesn't go well.
0: That's a good point. You know, sometimes it's better to know a little about a lot of things than a lot about a couple of things.
1: You know, a boat its a pretty complex thing. There are lots of things going on. You know, we, we just touched upon some of them. You have electrical, you have hydraulics, you've got mechanical systems, you've got plumbing, you have generators you have thrusters you have navigation you have proper maintenance of all this stuff you know there's a lot to learn and if someone's going to jump into this out of the blue it'll keep you absorbed for a long time which is part of what I love about it
0: there's a fairy tale aspect to buying a boat heading off into the sunset and living happily ever after But as we all know, it doesn't always go that way. There's a serious side to all of this as well. What's the most concerned you've been while underway? Has there any surprises or challenges that came up that you weren't expecting that you had to deal with uh, where you you thought this is really serious and it's not just all fun and games? And, you know, there's definitely a serious side to cruising.
1: I think, again, there's some different categories. A number of times we've been cruising along and you'll get a propeller strike on something that's below the water. You haven't touched bottom if there's a log floating below the surface that you can't see and you get this bang, that'll get your heart rate going. You want to know that the boat's okay. You're doing inspections and making certain, I mean, everything's always fine, but it's sudden and it's shocking. There are other boaters, whether it's monster wake coming at you that you weren't expecting or somebody who's not paying attention at the helm and coming at you. Those can be startling and get your adrenaline moving weather to a lot less of an extent, because in this day and age, it's much easier to sort of get a general sense of what you're going to run into?
2: We have been pretty lucky. We haven't had too much in the way of frightening experiences on board. I would. Credit that to a couple of factors. One, good planning and preparation, making sure your boat is sound for whatever endeavor you're embarking on, whether it's a day trip up the waterway or an offshore trip to jump down the coast. In our case, uh, we do everything we can to minimize the chances of things going wrong. And the other thing that helps us avoid problems, you know, Bruce's ability with mechanical stuff. Most of the stuff that's going to go wrong is going to be a mechanical problem on the boat and uh, we can deal with it. There are a lot of people out there cruising who really can't. They don't have the mechanical background or, or knowledge or tools or diagnostic ability to deal with things on the go. So uh, for us, for any given six-month trip on the boat, people say, oh, what disaster did you have? For us, we may have things go wrong, but we're possibly better equipped to deal with them on the fly and they don't ruin our day or ruin our cruise. And that's really, really helpful in having a good cruise. Go back to your original question. My biggest fear is a medical emergency on board. Somebody hits their head. You know, what was the things that you really can't recover from? Uh, I do worry about that. We've been through first aid. We try to keep a good first aid kit on board, but you know nothing better than having a trained doctor on board and we don't have one. So, yeah. I We've
1: got the ability to communicate, though, based on where we are. We're pretty much within range of yeah. other people pretty easily, pretty quickly, which is one of the nice things about coastal
2: cruising as opposed
1: to crossing an ocean.
2: We're, we're both trained and experienced in offshore passages where you are thoroughly self-sufficient. I mean, I've been on, uh, I don't know, a dozen or more 30-day-plus passages at sea, so I have a certain comfort level of being uh, self-sufficient or just knowing that you're on your own. Um, So everything we're doing now is coastal. So, yeah, Bruce is right. Help is closer at hand, but I still do worry about that potential medical emergency.
1: And and we take great pains to be very careful. You know, uh, again, from our sailing background, before you're allowed to participate in a Newport to Bermuda race, you have to be certified in a Safety at Sea seminar. And if one of the first things they start pounding into your head is never fall off the boat. Because if you do, you're, you're essentially dead. And uh, we carry that with us everywhere. So you don't take chances. You treat this seriously. And, and you just do everything you can to avoid getting into something that's bad.
2: I, I that's would also say, say that it's important to keep your boat Tidy and everything in its place. We go aboard lots of boats and people are living aboard and, you know, they kind of look like your house. There's stuff strewn around everywhere. And uh, we, partially because we move a lot, but partially because it's just the way we keep a boat, everything gets put away before we even start the engine or pass the lines off. You never know when you're going to get rolled by another boat, even on a nice, calm summer day or flat trip down the waterway or when the weather is going to go bad and on a boat when things start unraveling it's a chain reaction and it happens fast so you don't want to find that you know why is the bilge high water alarm going off and then finding you've got to move piles of stuff out of the way to get to see what's going on or suddenly everything's strewn around the weather's bad you're bouncing around you're trying to deal with the boat or a problem and you've got stuff everywhere so in our boat, you know, we don't bring stuff on board unless we can sew it properly. And basically, before we move the boat, it's stowed properly. And we are ready to go on any given day.
0: Just to shift gears a little bit, I first started following you guys from your Facebook group, Trawler Life, just surfing my Facebook page one day, and I saw this suggested video (laughs) pop up, and it was this beautiful boat underway and this lovely couple, and they just looked like they were having a blast, and I became an instant fan. Tell us a little bit about that Facebook group, 9,600 followers and growing. It seems like it's almost become a forum of, of sorts where people can ask questions and get some advice and also live vicariously through you. And how did it start? And how do you feel about providing such a positive platform for trawler enthusiasts to share with each other?
1: Well, it really started, like, like a lot of people, I participated in, in the last 20 years in forums of various types. And I, I have slowly been driven away from forums because of basic bad behavior. I'd begun on that other group posting these silly little one-minute videos of where we were and what we were doing. And, and, and that's another story where that came from. But very quickly, we found people were sort of following them. And, and it surprised me because they were really poorly done. They're just a minute-long video. You know, I, I say, here's the boat. Here's where we were. Here's where we're going. Here are the dogs. Here's Dorsey. She's driving. And this is what I ate yesterday. And that's kind of the subject matter. But people really sort of glommed onto these things and become almost like little mini voting celebrities in this small world of voting. And uh, it surprised me. And I liked sharing those videos. We're not monetizing it in any way. We just sort of are putting it out there. And on that group, again, I had some, some really negative stuff that would get tossed around sometimes. So I created Trawler Life. And their first rule was be nice. And uh, I've been able to control it. We have some rules that we sort of cover the bases with. And depending on the level of an infraction, people get warned or they get booted. And we're just not going to be, you can disagree, that's fine. But you can't be condescending. You can't be mean. So the idea popped into my head for the original video. I remember as we were on a sailboat and thinking about trawlers, I went looking for what's it like to be on these boats. And you get... Lots of videos about uh given by brokers or showing in a boat on a video. There are zillions of those out there. And there are lots of long videos, but my attention span isn't that long anymore. And I and I wanted just a short video that showed what it was like to be on the boat so I could build upon that in my mind and look for what I thought I wanted to do. So I started to take, that's what that was what the first video was about. I think we were going down Long Island Sound, heading south the first year. And I, I began, you yeah, know, we're leaving in the morning and look at this pretty sunrise and here's the engine and here's what's going on. And it seems to have caught on, as silly as they are.
0: It's definitely struck a chord with the trawler community. And uh, let's talk about trawler community camaraderie. You know, what does that come to mean for you?
1: Oh, we meet all kinds. Of, you know, you meet your best friends through boating, trawling. You know, we, we've owned Esmeralda coming up on four years now and just meet wonderful people.
2: Yeah. In, in many ways it's all about the people and there's so much cross pollinization of experience and ideas and suggestions on all levels that we really enjoy.
0: If you had to give one piece of advice to the the trawler newbie or the trawler curious, what would that be? I would
2: say go, go meet people who are doing it and talk to them and uh, develop those relationships and see what they say. Once you've met the people, then you have access to their boats, maybe, you know, go out on a boat for a day or a weekend or a week. Then you get ideas about what they like and don't like about their boats, about their lifestyle, what their challenges are. And so I think it's the people.
1: Firsthand is, I think, important because so much, there's so much lore out there about what boats the best or where to go and how to do it. And People like to talk and we all become something of authority as we get behind the keyboards. I think when you meet people 1st ten, you're better able to assess what they really bring to the table in terms of a comment or an observation and what they've seen, and it makes it easier to understand the importance of what they might be saying. As far as boats are concerned, I will tell you that I think if you want to be successful at buying a boat, you buy for what you tend to do. All boats are compromises. There's no such thing as a perfect boat, and you can you can go trawling in a port fisherman if you want. As far as I'm concerned, you can. And you can go fishing from your trawler, but neither is optimal for those uses. And I think it's important that you understand the reality of what you're trying to do and and choose a boat that will best serve that reality.
2: And also, you do you, you know, it's kind of a catchphrase these days, what works for us won't necessarily work for yeah. someone else just because we say ah, we love the american tug it's the ultimate boat may not be the ultimate boat for the next person down the road so listen to what we have to say about it and what we like about it but then think about what you want and what you like and uh listen to what other people have to say also uh, so keep an open mind
0: that's great advice Bruce and Dorsey, thank you so much for taking the time. I've learned a lot. I hope our listeners have too, and hopefully we'll be able to catch up with you on the water somewhere.
1: Oh, that'd, that'd be, be great. great. Fun.
0: Well, that was fun. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and learned a lot about what the Trawler Life is all about. Remember, you can follow the Beards on their Facebook group, Trawler Life, and I highly recommend you do. And as always, for all your long-range cruising needs, pick up a copy of Passage Maker Magazine or visit PassageMaker.com. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for Troller Talk and Passage Maker Magazine. I'm Andrew Parkinson.